Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. This episode features Andy Mills' fourth talk in his five-part series on faith and work. Andy Mills is the former CEO of the Thompson Financial and Professional Publishing Unit of the Thompson Corporation. He currently serves as the co-chairman of the Theology of Work project. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject, and visit us at our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Here's Andy Mills. Today I'm not quite sure what I called this, uh, because I think in my own mind I had four or five different uh, things I wanted to call it. I think it might be called the impact of work, or the outcome of work, or the output of work, or the result of work. I couldn't, I couldn't settle on a title for this, but it's what happens as a result of work is really what I want to talk about. And um, obviously we've talked about the problem of work, we've talked about God's design for work, and yesterday we spent a little time talking about how we should work, and in particular those sort of four categories that I want to, to, to just highlight once again, at a high standard or with, with excellence, well done, good and faithful. Secondly, yoked with Christ, Matthew 11, and also the whole concept of uh, Psalm 89:14, which is righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne, uh, and, and, and thinking about what righteousness and justice might mean. Um, then, obviously, we talked about being in service to others, and we talked about this, finally, yesterday, this, this rhythm of rest and work. And I'd mentioned something, this, this concept of oikonomon, which I will be talking about tomorrow on Friday uh, as, as a way of summation. So that's what we did yesterday. Today I want to look at the output of work, and I think it's not surprising, you know, that given that God is in control of this development of creation that he's taking to the city with all the things that he knew with his sovereignty and his omniscience, knowing everything that will happen and in charge of everything, I think it's not surprising, therefore, that we would see that what he uses work for is a number of things. And I want to suggest three things here this morning. I want to suggest that, number one, work is vital for human flourishing. Secondly, it's a major avenue for us for evangelism. And thirdly, it can be, notice the word can be, the basis of real joy in a person's life. So I want to start with the first one. It is vital for human flourishing. I have put a graph here on the board... Um, with no explanation as to what it is. As you can see, it goes along for a period of time, relatively flat, and then it explodes. Does anybody know what that is a graph of? The world population. Let me just give you... And by the way, God knew all of this ahead of time. Let me just give you some metrics along this. You know, I'm big in terms of metrics. This is around 1100 A.D. Somewhere in the middle here is around 1500, 1600 A.D., and this is today, 2013. Let me just give you some numbers. Back in 1100, we're talking around about 300 million people. By 15, 1600, we're probably looking at around 450 million people. And you can see a steady growth. I want to get the numbers right, so look at my piece of paper here. For the first time, this is, a, and this is 1 billion, 2 billion, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 8 billion people. We crossed the 1 billion mark for the first time in 1804. And you can see we've gone from 1804, 1 billion people, to today in excess of 7 billion. In 2012, we crossed the 7 billion mark. 
And just to give you the numbers, 1 billion in 1804, 2 billion in 1927, 3 billion in 1960, 4 billion in 1974, 5 billion in 1987, 6 billion in 1999, 7 billion in 2012. And the expectation is we'll be at 8 billion by 2027 and 9 billion by 2046. Actually, the rate of growth is actually slowing a little bit. But isn't that an amazing graph? And when you think about work, work has allowed this to happen. Because if you think about it, we've gone from kind of not very many people in the whole world to billions of people. This is a seven times multiplication in, in essentially two centuries. And yet, despite the fact that there are you know, differences in terms of money and distribution and there are shortages and temporary shortages sometimes in other areas and some areas in richer and poorer and this, that and the other, if you take the world as a whole, God through his provision of work has provided for everybody even through this kind of expansion. And by the way, not only has he provided, but if you compare someone living in 1804 and someone living in 2013, the standard of living is completely different. So it's not just that he's kept a steady state kind of functional activity. Okay, I'm going to keep you in your grass huts, but there's going to be 7 million of you in your grass huts. But actually we're moving from this kind of uh, early uh, sustainable agriculture now into homes. Many people have multiple homes, multiple cars, all of the gadgets that we take for granted. And obviously that's very different around the rest of the world. But if you move into Asia, one of the biggest shocks I had recently, I'd be it had been about 12, 13 years since I'd been to Hong Kong. I can't even explain to you the expansion of consumerism in Hong Kong that's taken place in the last 15 years. Goods and services are being created at an amazing rate. And even in Africa, where I spend a lot of my time, the rate of increase of economic activity in Africa, while it's still far below where we are in the Western world, the rate of change increase in Africa is going on faster than any other continent's development throughout history. In other words, what it took, say, America 200 years to get from A to B, it's taking Africa only 50 years. Now, it's still below where we are, but the rate of change is dramatic. God's provided all this. Jehovah Jireh. And he has worked, he has provided, and he's used work as his way of doing this. So when he's sitting there in the garden with two people, it's not surprising to me that he says, the task I want to give you is to work and make my creation productive. Because Adam and Eve didn't realize that in a few years there were going to be seven billion people on this planet, going to eight, going to nine, going to ten, going to eleven. I don't know what the final number is before the Lord says enough. Hopefully it's tomorrow, but we'll wait and see. And you know, I think the thing that's interesting is not only has God provided this functional capability, not only has he provided this improvement in standard of living, all the products that come from that, but it's also been a very creative process. God has inspired us through work. While we sit with this here, he's inspired us with work and invention to create an invent that has allowed this breakthrough and this kind of growth. So, for example, if we're looking at agribusiness and agriculture, He's gone from that sustainable agriculture to all the kinds of irrigation and input changes and chemical issues and fertilizer issues, all of those kinds of things which allow us to continue to produce more and more and more from the same amount of land. 
If we think about production capabilities, we've moved from handheld kind of machines to mechanical machines to electromechanical machines to digital kinds of things. And, you know, it's interesting now we're beginning to move for the first time when we're manufacturing things, not by taking a place whereby we, we take something that's, that's larger and we, we, we take pieces away from it to create the, the, the article. But with things like 3D printing, I don't know if you've been following these kinds of developments, you actually add material to things to build the product. So whereas before you'd take a big chunk of plastic and you'd carve stuff away to produce the product, now what you're actually doing is you're, you're in, with 3D printing, you're adding plastic to the, the, the article so that nothing is wasted and nothing has to be carved away or, or, or wasted in that process. And nanotechnologies were getting involved with unbelievable technology that God, that, that God has inspired man to think about through the process of work. Medical, we talked about medical yesterday and all the advances in medicine um, that you see uh, throughout all of, uh, all of creation. And obviously something that's both a, a, a sort of benefit and a curse, the benefit and the curse of computing. Just look at the difference that's happened in the last 10 years with computing and uh, personal computers, handhelds, the whole internet, social media, all of these kinds of things, all of this taking place uh, as we speak. So not only has God provided the function, not only has he provided this excess, but also through uh, human, integ uh, human innovation that God has given, that is the God of creation uh, has given us, we've had all these uh, benefits come through the, for this breakthrough growth. But not only that, but God has also inspired the creation of civil society. In particular, so we're not just a society that has a whole bunch of uh, tools and artifacts and things to produce things. We've also produced culture. We've also produced, we've produced music along the way. And I don't know for many of you, but certainly in my case, you know, the ideas of art and music and debate and reading good books and all those kinds of things. I mean, how much do they add to our lives? And how much do they instruct us about how we should live our lives? It was kind of interesting. A number of years ago, my daughter and I uh, were in Florence. Um, there is a, I don't know how many of you have been there. If there's a place in Europe that I would encourage you to go to, Florence is it. It's beautiful. Uh, there's, a, there's a big art gallery there called the Uffizi Museum or Gallery. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's three sides of a rectangle. And you start at one end and you come out at the other end and there are rooms off it. And essentially the way it's described or the way it's laid out, it's from primitive art, early art here. And it goes all the way to modern art and you just follow the art through the centuries. And it's amazing to see what's happened. But one thing that my daughter said, I said, she was 10 at the time. I said, what, what did you think? She said, well, Dad, what I thought was, it was interesting that when people weren't very good at painting, because some of the early stuff is pretty primitive, right? She said... When people weren't very good at painting, they certainly painted a lot about God. And then when they got really good at painting, they seemed to stop painting about God, and they started painting themselves. I thought for a 10-year-old, I want to brag on my daughter. You know, Ravi's talking about this 5-year-old. I want to you know, have a... You know, and, and in fact, that would, be a, that would be something that you would... If you read Francis Schaeffer, for example, you know, how should we then live? How should we now live? The name of that book. I mean, that's exactly what he follows in the course of the development of art. But we do have that. We have this art. We have this incredible culture that God has allowed us to build through work. And then finally, of course, the other thing that we've got, God is also inspired through this. Not only do all these people live here, have all these products, have the culture and this, that, and the other, but we govern ourselves on average somewhat well. 
I have to be careful what I say there. Obviously, there are differences. Some places, the government is very heavy-handed and autocratic. In other places, we find democracies. And I don't know where we're going with democracies. I don't know if we're getting to a place where democracies are so large and so top-heavy that it's going to be very interesting to see the American experiment in the course of the next 50 to 100 years. But on average, we've created um, societies and we've created uh, ways in which we govern ourselves and we allow ourselves to be governed. And by the way, those are some of the interesting first ideas when you go back to Socrates and Plato. These are the things that some of the first philosophers are thinking about, right? Some of the first people are really thinking about things is how should we, how should we rule and govern ourselves, Plato's Republic. And, and that thought and those con- things continue to, to lead us and drive us to not only have this productive world, but also to get to a place where we govern ourselves and we look after ourselves and, and uh, we try to better uh, each other. You know, it's interesting. Somebody came up to me yesterday and they said, uh, are you going to talk about profit? And by that he didn't mean P-H-E-T, profit. He meant profit. And I think this would be a good time for me to do that because I'm a proponent of profit. Um, you might not be surprised about that, having heard me for four days now. But um, you know, because profit, I think, gets a bad it gets a bad rap, and there are a lot of people who are basically saying profit's dirty word, and you know, there shouldn't be profits and this, that, and the other. But I have to tell you, in the world of work and in the world of free markets, the profit is the test of something valuable into the marketplace, and unless you create a profit, you're unable to reinvest in anything else. I mean, the only way you can continue to grow what we're doing, the, only, the reason I wanted to give you this graphic is because we're, we're not at a steady state place. We need more of everything all the time. And I think God knows that. But how do you get more of everything all the time? The only way you get more of everything all the time is to continue to produce excess with what you have now so you can invest it in the future so that you can actually extend the means of production or you can invest in different kinds of businesses and different kinds of products. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble here with my earpiece. And so uh, I'm a great proponent of, uh, of profit. I think Now, excess profit... We can get into the debate about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Interest rates are the same. What's usurious, what's not usurious. But I would not want you to shy shy away from the benefit of profit. Without profit, you don't have reinvestment. By the way, without profit, this building doesn't exist. Without profit, this camp doesn't exist. Without profit, the hospital you probably attend doesn't exist. The college you went to doesn't exist. The church you attend doesn't exist. Go on and on and on. The government doesn't exist in the size that it is today. Now, you may say that's a good thing, but, you know, profit not only, and, and, and the work, world of work, not only produces so that we can support this, which is enormous, and support all the benefits that come out of that, and the culture that comes out of that, the governance that comes out of that, but it also supports all of the not-for-profit and all of the civil society that we enjoy, which benefit other people, which add to the flavor of what it means to be a human and add to human flourishing. That all comes from profit. I spend a a lot of time with young people in my role at the college, and uh, I, I have to say this new generation of young people is quite remarkable. They are very uh, desirous of, cha- of, of making a- an impact for good. There's a, there's a very good uh, intention that they have. 
And so a lot of times people come to me and say, well, you do work in Africa. How can I get involved with a not-for-profit in Africa so that I can help solve the problems in Africa? And we talk about going into a not-for-profit. And my comment to them very simply is this. I said, don't go to a not-for-profit, not straight out of college. And, uh, you know, there are times that some people are called into the pastorate and this, that, and the other, and that's a, that's a different thing that, that people will, will work with God on. But what I say to them, I said, if you're going to a not-for-profit, what are you? You're a pair of hands, but what else do you bring? You don't bring any expertise. You've not had any experience in the corporate world or in an organization. You haven't created any product. You haven't worked with organizations and how people work together. You haven't developed any resources of your own. You've not built networks of people. On and on and on. You're basically a willing pair of hands. And essentially, you go into an organization, and I think I can say this, not-for-profits do not run as efficiently as for-profits. And so you're going as a pair of hands into this organization, which probably is not the paragon of uh, best practices in, in, in organizational management. And so what you've got is kind of like not a very effective person going to a not a very effective organization. Why would you ever want to do that? What I say to people is go out into the for-profit world, go out into the world of working for money for the, for the for-profit side and learn and, in, in, and invest yourself in this so that you can learn how be, what best practices look like, what it means to compete in the marketplace, what it means to think about improving your product and your customer service delivery and all the back office activities that you need to, what it means to hire people in a competitive environment, how you think about compensation. And then over a period of time, as you build up that expertise and now you have some expertise and you have some capability and you have some knowledge and experience, you have some, maybe some resources, some time, some ideas, now is the time to begin to transfer that into the not-for-profit world because you now bring something with you that is going to be valuable. And you can either make a partial movement that way by doing volunteer work and being on boards or whatever, or alternatively at some point you can say, yeah, it's time for me now to go and move and end my employment over here and move into the not-for-profit. But you go with something. You'll bring an expertise. You won't just be a pair of hands. You'll bring a level of expertise, and you will take it over there to an organization that needs that level of expertise. So you will bring something that will benefit that organization. It's a win-win situation. And it's kind of interesting. I've... I've had great success ruining the lives of a lot of young kids who wanted to go into Africa and instead they've gone into the world of work and they've come back. Many of them have talked to me later and said that was the best decision that I made. I really want to encourage our brightest and best to get into this world of work, get into the world of competitive world, to understand what life is about, to understand what the best practices are so that they can then begin to bring that to bear uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the betterment of humankind. And by the way, Wall Street is not the only place that needs people like we're talking about, young people and people of all kinds. This is, you know, we looked last night at the, the beautiful pictures, and I love what Camp of the Woods does uh, with all our missionaries around the world, reaching into China, those kids that you saw in all those videos. This is fabulous stuff, and we should support that really fully. But I think we have a tendency to say, well, that's the mission field. I wish I was going to that mission field. I wish God could call me to that mission field. You don't think Wall Street is an important mission field? I mean, there's so much impact on the world, and yet here we have 25% of people saying, you know, I'm going to have to do something illegal or immoral to get on. Uh, this is where we need to be, as, in addition to being in the places like China, it's that we need to be in those places that have an impact in the world, and, and, and the world of work is certainly that place. 
So that's the first thing I want to say about work. Work is vital for human flourishing. And when you think about, when you think about what has God done, you know, when he was standing way back here when there are two people, actually there was one when he asked uh, Adam to work the garden, but when there was one person back here, God already knew what was taking place here and knew what he would need to provide and have for us. By the way, he's the only one that knows what goes on after here. and when it ends. And I think that uh, more than simply producing what he's allowed us to do through work is to flourish. And, and I think that's the genius of God and the brilliance of his, and his, just an expression of his grace and his love. He's not just let us survive, but he's allowed us to flourish. And we need to continue that because our responsibility now is to help get us to wherever the next place is. We're picking up in that line of people who have been working to improve society, to improve corporations, to improve a lot of people's lives, of children, of adults, of widows, whatever it might be. We're in that long line, and it's our time to steward now his creation. That's what our calling is right now with this in mind as we go forward. God has got such a place that work is vital for human flourishing. The second thing I want to say is this. The work is a major avenue for evangelism. And I, and I want to express that in a slightly different way. I think work is a wonderful way that we can glorify God. Because I believe by glorifying God in what we do, we actually lead to evangelism. There's a lot of discussion about work and evangelism going on right now. In fact, many people would hold the position that the only reason to go to work is for evangelism. The only thing that survives are people's souls, and therefore the only reason to go to work is to address people's souls, and that's the only, that's the only reason to go to work. I hope, having listened to me for the last two or three days, you have a different view of that. Work is intrinsically value, valuable and important in its own right. But, having said that, it's also a phenomenal opportunity for evangelism. The workplace is a tough place by definition. It's a place of major stress for most people. It's a place where we spend most of our time. And I think our opportunity as Christians is by the way we work and the way we do things is to be different. And by the way, I think we too often fail at that. And one of the things for you to think about is where I work or where I'm involved, do people know that I'm a Christian? And by the way, if they know I'm a Christian, is that a good thing for the cause of Christ or not? I'm not being flippant. I, I have to ask myself that. And sometimes I do things, and I, the first thing I think about is uh, that dishonored Christ. And by the way, it's a lot easier to go back and say you're sorry if you get that. I mean, as... As Rabbi talked about the first, this morning, the first place you go is in communion with God, right? That's the first place. You know, when King David was approached and he understood what he'd done with Bathsheba, his first, he, he just went to God and said, I've sinned against thee. That's the first place we go to keep that right. But I think it's a major opportunity. Romans 12, 12 is a verse that I love. Um, I have it carved in an African plaque of all animals and, and this, that, and the other in my office. Romans 12, 12, 12 says, Be joyful in hope, patient in suffering, and faithful in prayer. And I just think that's a lovely apologetic for us. In the, it's, look, it's a great apologetic for everything, but it's a lovely thing for us to think about in the workplace. 
Be joyful in hope. You know, the, the workplace is often not a place of hope. But we can be joyful in hope because our hope is not in the workplace. Our hope is not in the idolatry of our role. Our hope is not in the next paycheck. Our hope is in the living God. First Peter, First Peter will talk to you about that. Our hope is in the living God. Do we live as people with a living hope? Or do we work to go to work on Monday morning with our head hung down and another five days at the salt mine? We're people of hope, and we need to live that way. We also go through periods, of extended periods of suffering. We're called to suffering, uh, and in the workplace we can go through those extended periods of suffering. And I think the reason that Paul says be patient in suffering is you actually don't have to be patient if it comes and goes very quickly. But I think the implication is when you have to be patient in suffering is those things go on a long period of time. And we need to have patience. And again, we can have patience because we have the hope. But we need to put on and we need to live with that for a long period of time. What a great model. When th- I mean, things in the workplace sometimes, the, the stuff that's bad goes on for weeks, if not months. The frustrations can really build up. If we can be those that are patient in suffering, how different is that going to look? And then finally, faithful in prayer. I have to confess to you, this is one of the hardest things and one of the things I struggled with the most, which was praying for my work. And I, 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 I know I was wrong, but I had this real hard time praying for specific outcomes for my work. I just felt it was not appropriate. And, and, and there's, there's nothing in Scripture that tells me that's right. I'm just telling you my struggle. It was hard for me to say, I got this contract negotiation coming up at, you know, 10 o'clock this morning. Please, God, bring it to a fruitful conclusion. I, I, I really struggle with that. On the other hand, praying for the people, for me, easier. And also praying during the course of the day, when I did go into a meeting, just to pray, God, help me in this meeting. There were times when you were in a conversation and you didn't know how to take it forward. Just that quick whispered prayer, Jesus, help. It's unbelievable the things that happen. Let me encourage you, you know, as, as, as Paul talks about praying incessantly, that's one of the ways you do it. You're just walking through the, you know, every day, with, with, you've got that phone call. You pick up that phone call. You don't have to go into an extended hallelujah, hallelujah kind of praise. Just say, God, help. Jesus. Just pick up the phone, make that call. Invite him to be part of that process all the way through, to be faithful in prayer. I think one of the things that's also important about the workplace is, it, is you have to catch, in, in my mind, you have to catch this balance between everybody knowing that you're a Christian without you banging them on the head that you're a Christian. Do you know what I mean by that? There was a, an apocryphal story. Um, about a, a guy who was at work, and he eventually went to a Billy Graham concert, uh, uh, not a concert, a, um, you know, a, a crusade, and came back as a born-again Christian. And he came into his office, and um, he couldn't keep it in. He went to his boss and said, I became a born-again Christian yesterday at the Billy Graham crusade. And his boss was excited and said, you know, that's great. I'm a born-again Christian too, and that's just wonderful. And he didn't kind of understand the reaction of this young man who had just given his life to the Lord, who was kind of angry at him, and said, you know, I've been considering being a Christian for a long time, but I've been observing you. And I said, if you could be as good a man as you are without being a Christian, I didn't need to be a Christian either. Now, I think that's an apocryphal story. I'm not sure that's true. But having said that, 
you know, if we are behaving and we're living our lives because of the power of the Holy Spirit, people have to know we're living our lives because of the power of the Holy Spirit, not just because of who we are. You'll need to find ways to, over time to let people know of your hope in Jesus Christ. By the way, one of the things that strikes me as often uh, difficult is, you know, we all want to run off, and, and I, I find lots of people who want to be doing Bible studies during work time and this, that, and the other, and often what you begin to find is resentment in the organization, which is, well, they should be working, but they're off doing this Bible study. Make sure you're doing the right things at the right time. One of the things I used to do is always, you know, it's easy in conversation. You're there Monday morning, you know, you always talk about what did you do over, who doesn't talk about what you did over the weekend? That's the easiest thing in the world to say, well, you know, Saturday night I did this, and Sunday morning, you know, we were at church, and, you know, just say things like that. You know, oh, it, was a, it was an interesting time at church on Sunday or something like that. I always had my Bible available on the, on the desk because I used to read my Bible in the morning. You'll hear a little bit more about that later. Um, when I was on a plane, you'd be traveling with people. I'd often, that would be the time that I would open up my Scripture and just read for a little while. What's interesting is... Uh, Gail knows this. I used to have what I called the 6 or 6.30 at night knock on my door. And what the 6, 6.30 knock on my door was, and it always came at a time where Gail almost had the dinner ready, and uh, uh, it was always a struggle, but the person would come in and say, can I, can I have a couple of minutes? And you know it was never a business problem at that time of night. They'd just say, can I just talk to you on some things I'm struggling with? We let a lot of people to cry. Um, Others you just, you know, watered. Some you planted. It's up to God what he does with them. But it's a great witness. It's a great witness. But be careful. Um, do it. You, you, you have to live the life, but you also have to speak the words. I like the Francis's of Assisi, you know, attributed lines, which is, you know, preach the gospel every day and if necessary use words, but I don't think it's exactly right. I think you both need to live your life and you need to proclaim the words and find a way to do that. And the workplace is just an amazing place. Where else do we go where there are so many people who don't believe in Jesus? I mean, I do a lot of fishing, and the first rule of fishing is if you want to catch fish, you go where the fish are. I mean, you can be doing the best cast, but if there are no fish there, you're not going to catch any fish. Go where the fish are. The workplace is where the fish are plentiful, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Pray to the Lord, you know, for the harvest. And, and uh, because the rest of the time we come back to our home, we come to our friends, many of them Christian, we go to church, we do church things. You know, if, this is one of the places that we spend time with not believers who need to know Jesus Christ, who tomorrow might be facing eternity separated from God. The third thing I think that comes out of, um, a third thing that comes out of work is it can be, I say can be, the basis of real joy and satisfaction in your life personally. And I think you understand why it can be that, because we've talked about it this week. What I want to do is I want to suggest three ways or four ways that stop us from enjoying that joy and that peace. And the first thing I think is called selfish ambition. These are the things that stop us from uh, enjoying uh, life. Ambition is a very interesting, uh, is an interesting word in the New Testament. If you look it up, you'll find the am word ambition seven times. It's actually two different Greek words. 
Uh, one is translated always as selfish ambition, and the other is translated as goal or object. The goal object is obviously the positive side of things. It's what our goal and our strategy and what our ambition is. It's a kingdom ambition. Uh, the selfish ambition, obviously, is not a kingdom ambition, but it's a self-ambition. Uh, and you'll, you, you, know, you, you have that admonition, for example, in Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition. Do nothing out. James 3.16, I believe it is, uh, is even a little stronger than that. Uh, it says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So selfish ambition is not one of these little things that's off to the side. This is a real cause, I think, of strife and difficulty in your, in your life. I believe that your life will be significantly uh, impacted by selfish ambition. So one of the things you need to challenge yourself with is why am I doing what I'm doing? It comes back to the idolatrous nature of work. It comes back to what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God or are you trying to build this life for yourself? When I do things, am I doing it for me? Am I doing it for the betterment of the company? Am I doing it for my work group? Uh, what might it be that I'm doing that for? Check yourself, I think, for selfish ambition. Very, very important. The second thing, the reason that we do not have the same sort of joy that we should, is we live a compartmentalized life. We have our Sunday life, and we have our Monday through Friday life. And sometimes the two don't connect. And what that leads to is you're just not aligned with the will of God for your life. And by the way, it's in all kinds of wording, it's in, it's in the messages that we hear, all of those kinds of things. Increasingly, what we've seen, I think, in the Christian life is starting in the end of the 19th century as the spiritual and the physical have separated. We're now in a world where in the, spirit, which is a Sunday, the spiritual world, which is a typically a Sunday morning world, we're spending more and more time talking about finer and finer points of doctrine and disagreement becoming less and less relevant to the world. Meanwhile, the world is off here doing its own thing, hopelessly lost, and as we've seen, going in absolutely the wrong direction. And it will impact all of us, including our children and our grandchildren. And it's only when I think we bring the spiritual back to the physical, and I'll talk more about this tomorrow and we integrate again, that we're going to find uh, that we can have an impact in this world the way God would want us to have an impact. Right now, that compartmentalization... Um, you know, is very, very clear to people. It's just business. Uh, that, you know, it's not personal, it's business. Those kinds of comments, I think, really speak to that kind of a activity. Uh, it was interesting to me, I've, I've spent time talking to you about Arua, this place I go to in the West Nile region. Uh, very frequently, I mean, you'll, the, the, the church I, I preach at is about as big as this. They'll, they'll get about a thousand people in this, believe it or not. Uh, you sit on each other, but... Uh, there's this joy-filled worship. The sounds are wonderful, and, and, and people just lay prostrate. on the, it was one, And yet, for many people, on Monday, when they've got an ailment, they'll be visiting the witch doctor. So Sunday is this incredible experience of spiritual. Monday is the witch doctor. It's whatever works. And that's a classic example, I think, of this compartmentalization we live. When you go to work, it's everything. God is everything to you. Thirdly, disobedience to God. Frankly, um, what we're doing, the way we're doing it, we're doing it our own way, and we're out of alignment with God's will for our life. And you're never going to find joy that way. God's never going to give you joy that way. Um, I speak to a lot of people, and one of the things I challenge people with, and, and, and it's a good question to ask is, 
Are you doing what you want to do, hoping that God is going to bless it? Or are you doing what God wants you to do? I would say in our world today, we are made up of a lot of people who are going to do, hoping that God will bless it, rather than really doing what God wants them to be doing. And again, it gets back to this, particularly among men, this desire to control, this need to be in charge. But if that's where you are, God's not going to let you stay there. And the way he will not let you stay there is through discord and pain. In 1996, uh, the CEO of the Thompson Corporation told uh, the three senior executives that worked for him, and I was one of them, that he was going to retire in April and that he was going to select one of the three of us to be the CEO uh, as of the end of that year, sort of September time frame. Uh, at the time, I was running about 50% of the company. I was running about 110% of the profits and about 120% of the growth. It became sort of like a Ronald Reagan said he never made the decision to run for president. It just kind of happened. And the same thing was happening around Thompson. I was just beginning to be sort of ushered into that role. No decision had been made, but that was the... the and by September, I, I remember sitting there going, I've got to think about this. Because I, even though I'd given my life to Christ a number of years earlier, the business had been going very well, I'd given you some description of some of the things that we did with regard to people, etc. I was, you know, this outward-looking successful person. I was just in the worst place in my life. I was just in terrible pain. Uh, just, I... I I didn't even want to get out of bed in the morning sometimes. I didn't want to spend time with people. I, I was short-tempered. Something was wrong with my life. I mean, everything in the work world was fantastic. Something was wrong with my life. Now, it may have had something to do with the fact that I'd, my wife had showed me a poem that my daughter, who was 10 or 11 at the time, had written saying, Daddy, where were you when I skinned my knee? Daddy, where were you when I climbed a tree? And then went on to just describe an absent father. Um, it may have had something to do with, you know, I was on the road 150, 200 nights a year, and that destroys marriages. Um, but I was just all out of sorts, and I had no idea what to do. Because I said I'd given my life to Christ. I mean, what else, did I, what else should I do? And I remember one morning I was sitting in my, I talked about my Bible in my office. I got in early in the morning, uh, and I was sitting there every day. I'd get in early and read my scripture, and I was there. And I was in Luke 18, the story of the rich ruler. I'd read that story many times. I'd moved over it pretty quickly, I think, because I really didn't want God to think much about my money or tell me much about my money. That was mine. And, but that morning, God just really... And Jesus... I was in the small conference room next to my office, and it was as if Jesus was in the room with me. And he said, you know, un un understand this better. What, what was I saying to that young man? And what became very clear to me, what God revealed, Jesus revealed that morning is... You know, that parable about, was about what was the counterfeit, we heard yesterday, what was the counterfeit God, right? Is it me or is it something else? This young man walked away because he was wealthy. He walked away sad because he was wealthy, you remember. And unfortunately, we never hear of him again in the, the Scripture. I mean, some of us would like that Jesus ran after him and said, well, let's do a deal. How about half your wealth? <laughs> doesn't happen. This young man walks away. We never hear of him. To our knowledge, we never see him again. Because he chose his earthly wealth over a relationship, an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what God revealed to me is that I was choosing my work as my idol. So when I early on say idolatry is one of the big problems, I know exactly for what I speak. It was my idol. 
And he revealed to me even further, and maybe even more graciously, that the reason it was my idol was not because of the intrinsic good of work, but because it was for my pride and my ego and the desire of the world's applause that I was doing this. And Jesus showed me that what I was trading off was the life of my family and my relationship with him, my relationship with Gail, my relationship with my children, my friends, and this, that, and the other. My sinfulness and my pride and my ego were actually hurting everything that I held dear and wanted to have a good relationship with. And it was that morning, it was just like Jesus said to that young man. And I remember sitting there and I opened my hands and I said, God, I give you my work. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do with me for the rest of my life as a working person, it's up to you. And all I can tell you is that was in 19, um, 1988, not 1996. And so here we are now, whatever that is, 17 years later, I'm living a life that I could never even have imagined. I mean, the president of a college, my professors in Oxford are turning over in their graves the thought of that. Going to Uganda to help people that live on a dollar a day, build lives, working on this theology of work, speaking to you here at a Christian camp. And yet, the thing that's amazing about this is, and Gail will tell you, my, my old assistant says he's failing miserably at retirement. Amen to that. And yet, the thing that I can tell you is he is using the gifts and skills he's given me more perfectly today than ever before. But could I have picked that life for myself? Not one of those things that I do today would I have picked out and said, oh, it's likelihood that I'll be a president of the college. Oh, it's likely I'll be going to Africa. Oh, it's likely I'll be speaking to a Christian conference in Speculator, New York. But he knew, and he's got me to that place. And I believe that was a fundamental moment in my life when I said, it's all you, Jesus, from this point forward. I want you to have that same sense of holding it there openly for him to say, use me. I want to work. You've given me gifts. You've given me skills. We've got things to do. We've got to impact community. What is it you have for me? I'll be faithful to that. And he'll lead you to a place that you could not dream of, of which joy is sublime, if I can come back to that word. Not just pretty, but it's sublime. You know, the other thing I think about the output of work, and I'll just uh, say this briefly, which is good because I've only got 10 minutes left, is the other output of work is God, through our work, brings resources to us. And I think we have to think about that as to how we use those things that God gives us. And those things, you know, are fairly clear. They're financial Benefits, experience, networks, influence, all of these kinds of things. And by the way, it doesn't matter where you are in your life. It doesn't matter what job you've done. You all have those abilities. You all have, to some more or less extent, financial resources. You have networks that you've built. You've got experience. You've got, you have influence. Some have more. Some have less. But you all have it. And the question I think that God is asking is, is what do you do with that? How are you using those resources that I've provided you? Let me just focus on money because it's the easiest one to focus on and it's the one that everybody wants me to focus on least. First, you know, to me, I think the first thing that you have to do is you just have to have the right view of money. And the question is, whose is it? 
First Corinthians 4, 7 says, all things come from God. And actually, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is a really interesting place, Deuteronomy chapter 8 talks about all the things that God has brought to the nation of Israel. But then it warns the nation of Israel not to begin to think about the fact that he has all these things, not to begin to think that you've done it. And I'm going to say this very interesting thing. Even the ability to earn is a gift of God. Not the fact that you earn, but just the fact that you have the ability to earn is a gift of God. So God's created you. God's gifted you. He's given you the ability to earn, and he allows you to earn, and he provides. Whose is it? It's all God's. But we don't tend to think that way, right? We hold. We hoard. How much more life have I got? Well, you know, how much money am I going to need? How do I think about that? The way do I think about those things? Do I, do I trust God in, in what I'm doing? And there are some great commands that I just, you know, commend to you. First Timothy uh, chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 10. Uh, really challenging thoughts about money and how you think about finance. And here's a good one. I mean, I don't want to just give you negative issues on finance. <laughs> You've got too much, you should give more of it away, etc. Because I can't tell what God is calling you to do. But here's one that I find fascinating. And when I raise money for various causes, this is a, this is a verse I use. It's Philippians 4.17. There's a, there's a verse that trips off everybody's tongue, right? Everybody knows Philippians 4.17. We all know 4.13. And, but 4.17 is Paul talking to those at Philippi who have been generous to him. And he says, not that I am looking to you for a gift, but so that it can be credited to your account. God's not asking us to give his money just to be a gift. God's inviting us to be involved in the process that he is involved with of moving creation forward. And he's inviting you to in invest his money in his creation, in the development that he's taking place, so that the reward can come to you. I mean, if you think about it, that's like someone saying, I'll give you a million dollars, you put it in an investment account, and you can keep all the, you can keep all the, the profit." Nobody would do that, right? God is doing that. So think of that in that positive way. Think about that God will reward you f for the investments that you make. And, and by the way, I always, someone made a comment, I think uh, at Purdy or at um, the, uh, uh, the worship service, when they were talking about giving, they talked about, I think John Bechtel talked about an investment, not a gift. I think that's exactly what we're asked to do, is to invest in God's kingdom. And by the way, I think you should ask exactly the same questions of the people who are asking for money that you would if you were investing in a business. What are you going to do with the money? How, you know, what are the outcomes? How is that going to be measured? Come back and see me you know, in six months to see how we're doing. Let's do a performance evaluation. You know, if someone's just coming up and saying, hey, you know, I love Jesus, give me money, I would advise you not to do that. I could give you other advice on money, and the big one I would say is don't give to your secular college even if you're an alumnus, and I'll tell you why later, but uh, that is just a waste. That's investing, that's investing in organizations that are systematically destroying the Christian faith. And even if you say, well, my money went to the athletic facility, money is fungible. They'll take it from there, they'll put it over there. The secular school today, 
God does not exist. America is not exceptional. Business is bad. The very things that, you know, we've been talking about this week. The opposite of which, the very things we've been talking about this week. You know, the same you can say of the money. The same is about experience. God's given you the experience. God's given you influence. God's given you networks of people. How are you going to work those and use those for the kingdom glory? They're resources. We all have them. How to think about them. Uh, I think that's something that God is calling us to at this particular point. I want to capture this very quickly in my work in Arua, just to give you a sort of a sense of how this might come together a little bit with experience and, 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 and various things. Uh, I went to uh, Arua uh, in Uganda uh, some seven years ago now for the first time. Uh, it's in the West Nile region. It's on the border of the Congo and the Sudan. It's the middle of nowhere. This is the place that Idi is, is known for two things, Idi Amin and the West Nile virus. These are not two good things. And um, it is a, it, it's been a war-torn place, a marginalized area. I didn't realize this, but anthropologists, it's one of their favorite places to study because it's totally marginalized. You know, wars and battles have just come back and forward across it, so nothing has developed. It's landlocked. It's miles from anywhere. But it's beautiful land, and it's very fertile. And when I went there and I looked, I mean, everybody was just trying to scratch out a living by just selling, buying, bartering, whatever it might take. Small amount of subsistence agriculture. And as a businessman, you know, there's an old saying, if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, to me, as a businessman, everything looks like a business problem, right? So I said, okay, we can solve this problem. We need businesses. We need economy. We need, we need people generating wealth. Because otherwise, people are coming along, and they're giving these people $100, and they spend the $100, and then the $100 are gone. Nothing has changed. We spent a billion dollars in sub-Saharan Africa in the last 40 years, and nothing has changed. So I've, uh, I was drawn by two scriptures, just to let you know. Number one was uh, Isaiah 58.10. Isaiah 58, as you know, is the great passage on social justice, if you want to think about it that way, on, on righting the wrongs. But the thing that was fascinating about 58.10 is it said, yourself on behalf of others. One of the problems I think is we have as wealthy Americans and everyone sitting in here is a wealthy American compared to the rest of the world. Is how, what do we think about it? What do we do with the poor and how do we think about that? And, and writing checks is important and necessary, but I got out of that passage that not only did I have to spend my money, but I had to spend myself. And by the way, it's been a transformational time in my life. So I just started going. That was what I, I, I didn't have a plan. This great strategic mind that you see in front of you, I just started going. I had no plan. So um, I just, the second scripture that really drove me was Second uh, Kings 4, verses 1 through 7, which is the story of Elisha and the widow with the oil. You can read it yourself, but Elisha asked two questions. How can I help you, and what do you have in your house? And that's essentially what I do when I go there. I sit with people and say, how can I help you, and what do you have in your house? What I mean by that is, what are you already doing? Do you have a bicycle? Do you have a little hand mill? Do you have a hoe? What is it that you have that you could begin to use for your profit, for the benefit of the, of the community, so that you could begin to develop some economic activity? You know, in that story, she just had a very, the widow had a very small jar of oil. And God miraculously provided oil for the whole village, and she was able to pay off the debts as a result of that. What I'm seeing is young men and women, older men and women, beginning to pick up on the things they were doing, be encouraged, 
and I come alongside them, sometimes with a little money, but not very much, mostly just encouragement, talking to them about what they can and they can't do, using the experience I've got, using some of the finances that I've got, using the heart that I think that God has transformed in me. It's not of me. It's of Him. And also now beginning to bring, use my influence and bring other people over. We've now started a, with, with some investors. We started a fund in Kampala to do more of the same. It's called the Mango Fund. In fact, my, my partners are in Uganda as we speak. Um, uh, and Ross Jones and Emily will actually be here on Saturday back for, to the camp. But, uh, uh, so we're beginning to leverage more people and more ideas to bring this, this way uh, of, of building economic development forward. It's just a small way that you begin to think about how you use work, how you use the things that God has given you in a way of putting back, giving back, to make a difference in the, in the lives of people. And I think that's what, you know, the work itself has wonderful outcomes to it, helps all kinds of problems as we've talked about, but the thing it also provides is it provides resources for us. And so there's a, there's a sort of a societal level of what work is doing and then there's an individual level of what work is doing. And I think what God is calling us to is both to work at that societal level but then think very, very, very critically and very carefully and strategically about God, what God wants you to do at that individual level too. And the opportunities are enormous. And can you imagine what life would be like if all of us as Christians were working out there to benefit society and at the same time taking the resources or some portion of the resources that God has given us with the idea of reinvesting them in different ways, in different people, in different groups, in different areas of the world. What a difference we could make. I think it was Ravi this morning who said, what difference would the world be if, if everybody, you know, we, we all saw the face of God on, on each other? I think in the workplace, we have that opportunity. And I think that's the opportunity that work gives us. So that's it for today. Have a great day. Thank you. That was Andy Mills on The Impact of Work. For complete show notes, please go to theologyofwork.org slash resources slash the impact of work. Join us for the next podcast, which will feature Andy Mills' fifth and final talk in this series, getting it right.